Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you. If you haven't seen the Christmas production, please come out this afternoon or tomorrow. Uh, Just a wonderful production. So grateful for what Pastor Ron and all of the people involved have done. Uh, A lot of people here for the first time over the last few days. Uh, Some people giving their lives to Jesus, some people signing up for discovery classes. So be encouraged. God is at work. This question this morning, as we begin this sermon, is where is God and uh, can he be known? Maybe you're familiar with uh, a mountain in the, uh, on the western side of China. It's in the Tibetan region. It's a really remote, inhospitable region. The name of the mountain is Mount Kalish. It's about 6,638 meters high. That's pretty accurate. Um, almost 22,000 feet. It's a sacred place for four religions. Uh, the Hindus, they, they, they believe that Lord Shiva dwells at the top and that he is the destroyer of ignorance and illusion. Power. He represents power. He's at the summit. For Buddhists, they believe that the Buddha Demchok resides at the summit and he represents supreme bliss. Those that are followers of Jainism, they believe that their first leader achieved nirvana at the top, enlightenment. For followers of Bon, Bon is a Tibetan religion coming out of Buddhism. They believe that that whole region, Mount Kailash and the mountains around it, it's a mystical region, and that is where supreme spiritual power resides. So all four religions consider it to be a sacred place, and thousands make the pilgrimage there every year. This has been going on, actually, for thousands of years. Hindus and Buddhists will go around the mountain in a clockwise direction. It's 52 kilometers. Followers of Bon and Jainism, they will go around in a counterclockwise direction. But God is up there, or spiritual power, at least, is seated up there, or if you want illumination, enlightenment, you go up there, and it's inaccessible. You can't get there. There was a Spanish expedition that uh, wanted to climb this mountain in the beginning of the 20th century. They didn't manage to get up. And since then, the Chinese government has prohibited the climbing of Mount Kailash. So no one has ever climbed it. And the Chinese government has done that because they are respecting the four religions that consider it to be a sacred place. If, even if you step on the mountain, that's a grave sin. So interesting, isn't it? All four religions believe that it's a sacred place, that God or a spiritual power resides there up at the summit, but you can't get there. So how could God ever be known? Throughout history, people have imagined God to be in another world or in the heavens or on some high distant mountain. This picture of a God being distant, inaccessible. Many in our Western society would say, well, it doesn't matter, we're atheists. But there are many that are agnostic that would say, yeah, there is a supreme power. There must be some ultimate cause, but whatever that is, whoever that is, unknowable cannot be known. Here in Metro Vancouver, we can't know God. What would the scriptures say? Can God be known? 
And if he can be known, how does he reveal himself? What's he like? Does he even want relationship with us? Well, today's text will help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you're present here by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that your Spirit would guide us as we read your scriptures. Help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. Your word is living and active. I pray that nothing I say would stray from it. Lord, be our teacher. Teach your people. We submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18 this morning. It's, if you grab the Bible in the pew or in the seat in front of you, it's page 886. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Back to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John has already referred to the word in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John states that the word is eternal, that the word is in relationship with God, and that the word actually is God. Why does John refer to the word? Why would he use that language? Pastor Jonathan talked about this a few weeks ago. The Greeks, they used this word, the logos, to represent a certain concept, a certain understanding. They saw that life was always changing, and they wondered, well, what keeps it all together? What holds the universe together? And they began to think about divine reason. There must be some organizing principle that keeps it together, that guides what occurs in human life. And so they called it divine reason, the Logos. Most Greeks didn't believe that any immortal God would ever become a person, would ever want to be a person, and so the gods were inaccessible. But here at the center of all things was the Logos, pure reason and intellect. For the Hebrews, the understanding of the Logos was somewhat Different God, when he revealed himself in the Old Testament, he would speak forth the word. He created the universe by speaking it forth. He delivered the people of Israel, revealed himself, spoke forth his name, and spoke forth their deliverance. God coming through in power, in creation, in redemption, revealing his nature. During the wilderness journey, God reveals himself to the people of Israel through the law, revealing his character, revealing his nature, speaking forth the logos, the word, the revelation of who he is. And then in verse 3, John says, all things were made through him. He's referring to the word. And without him was not anything made, and so the word is the creator God. And in verse 14 we read, and the word became flesh. The word is Jesus. For the ancient world, this is astounding. The word who was God, who is God, who who relates to the Father intimately, has become a human being. 
God came on the human scene and identified with humanity. How could that be? What does this mean? Became flesh doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God. He was fully God, fully human. He became a fetus, a child, a young man, an adult man. And Paul writes about him in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the eternal, the all-powerful, the infinitely holy God, becoming a human being. God's word to humanity is God himself. Became a man, shocking. And dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, it means that God actually set up his tabernacle among us. He lived among us. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this phrase and says, he moved into the neighborhood. Came into the world of human life. Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9 talk about God dwelling, talks about God dwelling among the Israelites in the tabernacle. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And as the Israelites journey through the wilderness, God tabernacles among them. In, he resides. His Shekinah glory is there in the tabernacle. Shekinah means dwelling, settling. Their tents face toward the tabernacle. When they camp for night, all tribes with their tents face toward the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It was where God met man, and man met God. God! Manifesting his presence to his people in the tabernacle. And now through Jesus' coming, God's word has become flesh. Jesus is the tabernacle of God, as it were, on earth. Jesus replaces the tabernacle, replaces the temple. He's the supreme revelation of God. A person, present, a man. What a thought. When Jesus moved into our neighborhood, God himself was setting up Residence among us. Maybe you've had the experience of someone moving into your neighborhood. A person, maybe a family is coming into your neighborhood, into your cul-de-sac, into your condo. And of course, before that person or family arrives, everyone is talking, right? What are they like? Where are they coming from? Will they be noisy? Will they be messy? If they have children, do they have boys? Do they have girls? Anyways, everyone is speculating. Everyone is imagining. But as soon as they move in, reality sets in. (laughs) Because you start to know them, relate to them as people. The self-revelation of God in Jesus immediately moves us beyond the purely intellectual, beyond our reasoning, beyond the speculation, beyond the mystical, to something concrete in a person. It moves us away from the image of a distant God on a high mountain that can never be known to a God that has become one of us and wants to be known. 
in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. Some disciples, they didn't know that Jesus was in the neighborhood, but John the Baptist tells them. (laughs) And so they go to find Jesus, and Jesus sees them coming, and he says, well, what are you seeking? They're not sure what to say, and so they blurt out, well, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. He invites them to come and see. See, God wants to be known. They go with him. John continues in verse 14, 14 verse B, B, sorry. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Behind these verses, we have another mountain experience in the Old Testament, Exodus 32 through 34. The people of Israel, they've been delivered from Egypt, they have experienced God as their deliverer, as Yahweh, the God who is present to save. They've come out of Egypt, they've passed through the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness. They're journeying. They're on their way to the promised land, and in Exodus 20 to 31, God reveals himself to Moses, speaks forth the law. He's revealing his nature, his character, how his people should relate to him. But while Moses is on the mountain, well, he's just taking too long, and people wonder, where is Moses? And so they make another God, a golden calf, and they attribute their deliverance to this God that they have created. God is angered by the rebellion. And when Moses learns of what has happened, he smashes those stone tablets. He's afraid that God will leave his people, and so he intercedes for them. He says to God, if I am to lead your people, show me your ways. And God replies, my presence will go with you. Moses says, show me your glory then. And God replies in Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. There it is again, Yahweh, the deliverer. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so God does not permit Moses to see his face, but his goodness passes by and Moses sees him from the back. He sees the afterglow of the divine glory. And then John writes, we have seen his glory. Imagine how the Jewish hearers would would hear that. You mean what could never be seen, what we have always assumed to be impossible, the inaccessible God. Now, You saw his glory? We've seen, it means we've we've gazed upon, we have contemplated. The word actually means to watch as in a theater. John's saying we, we watched the scenes of his life, we contemplated the plot lines, we saw the victories and the struggles. We've seen him in first turns and we touched, we gazed upon, we heard. We witness the manifestation of God's presence, His holiness, His power, the Shekinah glory visible in the life of Jesus. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. That word only means one of a kind. Beloved. Unique. Jesus was not a Son of God in the sense of being created, being born. No, He was the special object of the Father's love. Exactly like the Father. In all of his attributes, in all of his glory and honor. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Going back to John 1 verse 14, we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, father full of grace and truth. That phrase, full of grace and truth, should be connected back to glory. And so the glory that comes in Jesus, full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Well, again, in the background, we have the Exodus passages. Grace and truth, a translation of steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at how God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This word, steadfast love, it's actually one word in Hebrew in it. Recent studies show us that it's marked by graciousness. It's, it's gracious, steadfast love. The Greek word here for grace is unmerited favor that brings blessing and joy. It's a free gift, the free gift of God to us, God's grace. But even in the Old Testament, this understanding of God's steadfast love being full of grace. And if we want to understand gracious love, we look at Jesus. The Hebrew for faithfulness can also be translated truth. God is forever faithful to himself. He is true to his word. If he's in covenant with people, he is true to that relationship, always true to what he has revealed to be true, to reality. The Greek word truth means reality, verity. So if you want to understand truthfulness, look at Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God. He embodies God's glory. Observing Jesus, we learn that God is 100% grace and 100% truth. He's not a balance of grace and truth. He is 100% grace and 100% truth. You and I, sometimes we are gracious, but we are not full of grace. Sometimes we speak the truth, but we are not consistently true. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Paul writes, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, the disciples, they get to see this, a living illustration of it. Jesus is in Samaria. Things are getting hot in Jerusalem, and so Jesus and the disciples, they move through Samaria on the way to Galilee. And while they're in Samaria, they get tired and hungry. They stop in Sychar. While the disciples go into town to get food, Jesus remains at the well. And a Samaritan woman comes at midday. Why has she come at midday? Probably because of shame. She's been married five times, and she's living with a sixth. And Jesus, the word made flesh, asks her for a drink of water. Unthinkable. She can't believe it. Why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus begins to introduce himself and starts talking about living water. She tries to divert his attention. She says, well, are you greater than Jacob? Jesus brings her back to her need for living water. 
Again, she tries to divert his attention. So she talks about, well, places of worship. Should we worship God here on this mountain outside of Sychar, Mount Gerizim? Or should we be worshiping down there in Jerusalem? What do you think? And again, Jesus says, that doesn't really matter. Your religion actually is not going to give you living water. And he presents himself as a well springing up to eternal life. 100% grace. 100% truth. Verse 16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness. Jesus is the fullness of God. Paul writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What does that word upon mean? You know, it, it could mean in addition to. And so maybe we would translate one blessing after another or grace replenishing grace. It would be that idea of, the, of the Jesus being the well. You know, we, we get tired, we get weary, we're ready to give up. We're not sure we can make it. And the well exists, the well of Jesus, welling up to eternal life. And so there's grace upon grace. And when we need more grace, it's always there for us. And that would be true. Theologically, that would be true. But perhaps not from this text. Maybe we would have to go to other texts to sustain that. Here, I believe that upon just means instead of. That's what the word means. And also because of the context. And so we might read grace instead of grace. One grace replacing another. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the grace and truth that came through Jesus superseded the law of Moses. As we've already seen in Exodus 32 to 34, the Israelites, they have abandoned Yahweh. They have created their own God. Moses intercedes for the people. God does not abandon them. That's grace. He has already given the law. Moses smashed the tablets but then in, verse, in chapter 34, he gives the law again a second time. That's grace. That which he revealed himself to be true, he reveals again his nature, his character. He wants the people to understand how to live in relationship with him. So the contrast is not between a bad law of Moses and a good Jesus here. Rather, Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. In fact, in conversation with the religious leaders in John chapter 5, Jesus says, you know, Moses, he spoke about me. This is John 5 verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, the law of Moses, according to Jesus, he says this in John chapter 7, the law was actually given to you, religious leaders, to be kept. But you gotten caught up in the minutia of the law, your interpretations of it, and you don't even keep it. The law of Moses, it revealed God's gracious character. It pointed to me, but you don't even understand the law. And you don't see its ultimate purpose, that it's pointing to me. Jesus comes as the full embodiment of that law. If you ever wanted to understand what it would look like to live the law of Moses, you look at Jesus. He fulfills it. He clarifies it, he absorbs it, he fleshes out everything that God has said. 
He fulfills the law, grace upon grace. And so the unveiling of God's nature through Jesus supersedes the law of Moses. Again, the disciples, they observe a living illustration of this. In John chapter 8, a woman is, is caught in adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring her to Jesus. And they say, the law of Moses would command us to stone her. Jesus kneels down and he starts writing on the ground. In heaven, I hope to ask him, what did you write on the ground? He writes on the ground. And he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down again and keeps on writing. And slowly they walk away, one by one. And finally he asks the woman, no one here to stone you? No one. And he looks at her and speaks truth and says, go. And from now on, sin no more. No stoning, but she needs to change. 100% grace, 100% truth. Grace and truth, grace upon grace. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Again, going back to Exodus 33, what God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Moses could not see God. But Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has seen the Father. He knows the Father and he can reveal his glory to man. Look at John 6 verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, This is Jesus speaking. Except he was from God. He has seen the Father. The only God at the Father's side. John is referring to two members of the Trinity. The Father and the Son. The Word that was with God. At the Father's side is a Hebrew idiom. idiom, Sorry for. Was in the bosom of the Father. It it, it speaks of of personal relationship, of being intimate, of knowing each other. Sometimes this idiom was, was used for being at the table, being around the table and having conversation. And so you see the person face to face. There's intimacy there. Father and son, an eternal, loving relationship. And Jesus has made the Father known. Made known means has explained him, has told the story. We get our word exegesis from this word made known. We could say that Jesus is the exegesis of God. He's the, if you want to understand God, look at Jesus. He'll interpret God for you. He'll tell you the story. He'll explain God to you. So God's ultimate revelation of truth to us as human beings doesn't take the form of an argument or an assertion, page in print. God's ultimate, ultimate expression of who he is takes the form of a person that we are to know and relate to. William Barclay has written, the early church did not think of Jesus Christ as someone whose teaching must be discussed and debated and argued about. They thought of him as someone whose presence could be enjoyed and whose constant fellowship could be experienced. Their faith was not founded on a book. Their faith was founded on a person. We often say that we are people of the book. And this is a treasure. Scriptures. This is a treasure. To be highly valued. But this treasure speaks to another treasure. The most important treasure. Jesus himself. 
we are first and foremost the people of a person. Other religions will say, yes, we have a holy book. But only this book points to the true treasure, Jesus, that we are to know, who wants to be known. If you want to know God, Jesus says, look at me. When we look at Jesus, we see the heart of God the Father. If you want to see Jesus, read the Gospel of John. If you've never studied the life of Jesus, take a discovery course, Discovering Jesus. What does God look like? Well, when the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest among them, and Judas is masterminding a plot to undermine Jesus, Jesus says, or rather he takes a towel, the man made, the word made flesh takes a towel, takes base, a basin, water, and he gets down and he washes the feet of the disciples one by one, including Jesus. And then he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now that is a remarkable thought, isn't it? That God, the creator of all things, the all-powerful God, the infinitely holy God, would bend down and wash the feet of those disciples. And not only that, but wash our feet. Have you meditated on that? That Jesus has washed our feet, has cleansed us. And not only that, we are called to follow him, follow his example. We are now living temples. The New Testament refers to us individually, corporately, as living temple. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God tabernacles with us by the Holy Spirit. That's a profound truth. So amazing that God would become flesh and dwell among us in Jesus. And perhaps just as amazing that that same God would choose to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit and that we would be called to be living temples, the glory of God shining in and through us. What does God look like? Well, when his own people, his own family, reject him, and no one understands him. He prays. John 17. And here is the heart of God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he prays for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory... The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus prays for his disciples, prays for us. And then from that time of prayer, he goes to a hill outside of Jerusalem. Not to a high distant mountain where he can't be seen. He goes to a hill outside of Jerusalem and he dies outside the gates of Jerusalem. Vulnerable, exposed, in plain view. God made flesh, dead, having taken our sins upon himself. The ultimate revelation of who God is. God loves us. Hallelujah. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has made God known. He loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for loving us. Oh God, may we live our lives for your glory. May we walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit this Christmas season. Your glory shining in and through us. May your light shine brightly. May we point, Lord, family, friends, colleagues, to you, the true light. May this Christmas season be a time of celebration of joy in your presence. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.